As doctors of what I call proper healthcare, and certainly as chiropractors, our mission is big and bold. Our nation and the world requires leadership when confronting the pandemic of metabolic derangement, which leads to degenerative disease and poor health. Masses of people around the globe will never know what it feels like to have boundless energy, unlimited potential, and true health independence into their senior years. Join me in my quest to bring together the best practices to make you a leader in your community. My question to the entire profession is, if not now, when? If not us, who? Uh, so this is kind of on the fly that we're creating this, I don't know, what are we going to call it, Chris? A podcast or a video cast or something? Cast, I don't know. Yeah. So th this is for doctors and, and professionals who are uh, in our profession where, you know, in the natural healthcare profession where we're chiropractors by training, both Chris and I are, are chiropractic neurologists, we're board certified, and we both have a really strong background in functional nutrition. Some people call it functional medicine. And you and I are, our phones are blowing up during this time. So this is March, 2020 during the, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and, you know, we're kind of giggling a little bit, but really it's serious because the whole world has stopped on a dime. Uh, the, the engine of the planet is just completely stalled and, and in, in fear of uh, contracting a virus. And we're, we're going to talk quite a bit about it, but people are reaching out. Look, people come to me in our profession, Chris, and, and they come to me with all kinds of questions. They look at me as an authority. And the first thing I say I learned from you is, man, I... I hope what I'm telling you is right because I have no idea. <laughs> I put out some things and, and to, to piggyback on that, I said, you know, this is probably going to make us look a little bit foolish, this virus and this pandemic, because what we think we know today is ch it's changing every day. It's changing all the time. So, you know, we're doing best that we can today, best knowledge we have today. But that, that doesn't mean that's the same information we could put out tomorrow. It changes uh, minute by minute, day by day. It's not one of those things that, well, we'll look back in an hour, I mean, in a, in a month and see what's different. We'll look back in an hour and say, well, that was, that was kind of foolish. So kind of preemptively saying, you know, I don't know, whatever we say today, I don't know if it's going to be true tomorrow, but we're giving you the best knowledge we can at the moment. And so you and I talked earlier, I said uh, to my staff, we got together, listen, when there's a fire, some people run in and some people run away. And uh, right now, uh, we're kind of quote unquote, the firefighter. So we're running in and, and now there's a way to run into a fire. You don't douse yourself with gasoline and run into a fire. So you do the best you can, you be as safe as you can. But by the same token, you know, when you go to a fire, it's not all, this is exactly what happens. You can't foresee some of the turns you're going to take and how harsh it's going to be. So we're in a healthcare crisis that's unprecedented. Uh, you know, we have a pretty good idea. I, I like to dumb it down. I like to self-deprecate a little bit, but nobody knows what they're doing. We're just making educated guesses and doing the best that we can with the best information we can and giving ourselves the ability to correct our mistakes we make today, tomorrow, and, and just moving forward. Yeah, no, without a doubt. It, it, it's interesting because I was going to say people in our profession kind of turn to me as some kind of an authority on things. And I, I guess there might be some good reason to do that. But really, they don't know that I turn to you. <laughs> well, I think it's important. We, we all turn to each other. Right? Yes. So, 
But give me a second. No, because I, I, I really want to uh, uh, get this out there because really uh, people don't know who Chris Turnpaw is and, and they really should. And, and the reason why is, uh, you know, we, we, look, Chris, you, you teach all across the country, even all across the world sometimes uh, in, to, to doctors on the subject of functional medicine and functional nutrition, not just because you have that background clinically and academically, but also you have a very unique practice. Uh, your practice is quite possibly the busiest practice I've ever seen in the functional nutrition world. And there may be other experts in our field who spend so much time teaching and writing, they don't really spend a lot of time in clinical practice and I've been to your practice and I've sat behind you with patients for like 12 hour shift and taken notes. And I see how busy your practice is. And I just want to just put that out there because you're, you're not only an authority to us from an academic standpoint and as a teacher, but man, when you're, when you get an idea of something to do in your practice, you can apply it to hundreds and hundreds of people in one week and 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 gather that data so your office is really a, a, a you know just a a uh, font of a lot of knowledge a lot is coming out of there and during this crisis i'm sure you got a lot to say and we're going to talk about that but uh, that's a, a really important point that the listeners have to understand about you it's not just academic it's not it's clinical experience um, and you told me stuff 10 days before it even hit the news. I mean, the whole chloroquine story, I, I heard that from you. I think it was like March 6th or, 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 or 5th before, maybe almost two weeks before it hit the news the first time. And the fact that it needs to be taken with zinc. You were the first person I heard, uh, say, say that. And that's always the case when it comes to Lyme disease, when it comes to, all of these different conditions where people are turning away from what the medical profession is offering because it's not working and turning towards a natural approach, you're really ahead of the curve on so many of these issues. And I really want everyone listening to pay attention to this podcast or this video because, you know, it, it really, if you're, if I'm turning to you, well, I want people to also turn to us in this conversation as a direction of where where we're going. I think I so. think to, to to point that out, I I do to your point. I, I do teach all over, and the reason I teach is not because it's um, uh, a job to teach. I love to teach. It's a passion of mine to teach. But one of the things that I like to think that I bring that may be unique is I'm in the front line. I'm in the front line all the time. I'm seeing patients. So I'm not telling you something that I read about or a research paper or something I heard about. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've sat and in, in, because I'm still learning, we're all still learning. I'll sit there and somebody will present, this is what you're going to see. And I'm like, no, that's not what you're going to see. And I can make that statement because I actually see patients 12 hours a day, five days a week, and we have 11 other clinicians in the office, other uh, healthcare providers in the office. So I get to look at 11 people's labs, findings, uh, cases, and I get to see the most unique in my office that they kind of filter up. So I, I, I'm not the best at the marketing piece, or I haven't written 15 books to tell you how to do everything perfectly. That's not who I am. But what I am is somebody that, I, you know, as you know, I'll share with you anything I know anytime. 
but I'm in the front lines. I'm seeing it. So I can tell you clinically that's not working or that is working. And, and so with that, kind of what you said is, is I don't know much, but I know I'm seeing patients all day long. <laughs> I can tell you what's working and what's not working. And when somebody says, I'm the authority, let me tell you. And you say, well, how many patients do you see? And they say, well, I, I see a couple a month or a couple a year. I haven't seen a patient in 10 years. I'm just on the lecture circuit. I'm like, eh, that has value. It all has value, but it doesn't have value of what you see in your office. So um, I, a lot of times when I teach, I'll put up the case as far as the textbook says, this is what it looks like. And with most of my lectures, I try to put in the past 30 days, here's what I've seen. So it's not, this is my one-off case that I saw in, in 2004 that looks this way. It's this is what came in our office in the past 30 days. And by the way, this is the curveball that it threw me. It's, it's not just the way it is in the textbook. So it's real life. It's, it's real applicable. And so this is kind of one of the, the, we've talked about this. We want to get this message out because this is actually what comes into your office. This is what you're actually going to see. This is exactly what walked in. So, yeah, no, and and it, it's interesting too because I referred patients to your practice. You're you're, you're in Central Pennsylvania. It's a pretty uh, rural type of an area. It's outside of Harrisburg, and I've sent patients from New York City to your practice three hours away for for different reasons because there some cases are very complex and and we collaborate together and you have resources there that that we actually don't have in New York City. And one one of the things I remember uh, was a patient goes, yeah, yeah, I, I called. And they're like, there's a I got to wait 12 months to see him. And I'm like, I'm like, wait a minute. You know, few people realize that there's a turnpaw method and you, you have 11 clinicians in the office and all of those clinicians are following a method. And you don't have to see Dr. Chris Turnpaw to get the turnpaw method. And let me, again, toot the horn of, of your practice. You know, the clinicians you have are chiropractors, nurse practitioners, but also uh, somebody, you know, who has a whole career in pediatric oncology, somebody who has a whole career in nephrology, uh, and they bring their special backgrounds in primary care. But really, nobody sees a patient in your office as a clinician without first learning your method. So everyone is kind of preaching from the same book. On, on a patient approach. So it's not like you have to wait 12 months for Dr. Chris because you could wait nine months for Dr. So-and-so and three months for Dr. So-and-so and you're going to get, and not only that, but all the clinicians are in the same room uh, spending a lot of time together and you're discussing all of the cases. So uh, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty collaborative. So whenever, I like to call myself the escalation clause for no other reason that when there's a question, they send, tend to walk down the hallway. But I have the same respect for my clinicians too. And, and, you know, I'll walk down and say, Hey, what do you think of this? But we're very collaborative. So anybody that comes in the office, you see any doc in the office or nurse practitioner, then you kind of get a collective mindset of everybody working together. So Chris, let, let's jump into the current events, right? Let, let, let's kind of, you know, right now there's uh, a lot of chiropractors are, are reaching out to me and, and chiropractors who are amazing at what they do. They recognize that there's a structural, uh, there's a structural connection between the nervous system and the body that only a chiropractor can handle. And that, and they're excellent at doing that. 100% of their success and their practice is based on putting their hands on their patients in a brick and mortar environment. And depending on where in the country you live in, in, in a lot of places that that's been shut down. Uh, and, and it's really, if you think about who goes, you know, the number one reason to see a doctor in the last five years is 
is low back pain. And I can promise you right now, there's people suffering with low back pain at home because they don't want to go to a healthcare facility. So, so chiropractors are essential um, primary uh, portal of en- entry providers that can see those patients. But even in the context of this crisis, they're they're stuck watching us because they can't practice. And they've been caught in their heels. They have a great education. They can conduct an examination. They, they can determine if somebody's in crisis. They can make the call as to whether or not somebody needs to go to the emergency room. And, and, and they, they can really play a, a bigger role here. But I think as a profession coming out of this, what are the lessons that we need to learn? What, what, what do our colleagues need to learn I think they need to learn how to make themselves available as an expert in their practice on promoting health, especially as it relates to the immune system. So what do you think would be a good approach for a lot of the docs out there who are not being considered as an expert by their community when they should be? Well, that's a great point. So coming out of the chiropractic profession, I think that uh, first of all, let me digress a little bit. In the state of Pennsylvania, and I think in other states, we are considered essential and if we just took a very narrow-minded or narrow scope of chiropractic, um, if somebody is in acute pain and they aren't sure whether they should go, you know, whether they should go to the chiropractor, but they they think maybe they should go to the emergency room for their pain, they're putting themselves into the fire. They're putting themselves into the, where people are sick and contagious and all that kind of stuff. So we're essential just from a standpoint of why wouldn't you go to the least risky place. And that will be the chiropractor as opposed to the urgent care or even your family care doctor. So that's one of the reasons we're essential is because we will keep people out of the infectious disease realm and that bubble that you put yourself into. So if you're going because you have aches and pains and fever to the emergency room, or you're going because you have acute low back pain, they're completely different etiologies. And you don't want to put somebody in harm's way for back pain. So that's the first piece. But the second piece, which I think all of us will uh, in the chiropractic profession appreciate is it starts with the health of the host. It starts with being healthy. So do you want to go into this healthcare pandemic healthy? Do you want to go in with the best possible immune and nervous system you can? And so I think our message coming out of this is how do we expand our story, which has always been our story, to keep us optimal, total social, emotional, physical, spiritual well-being. And part of that is the message that we have had since 1895. You know, like it's it's about total body health and wellness. And that's that message can be promoted. Now, I will probably upset a few purists, but I think in 1895 uh, or and the years to follow, it was a much easier, more structural way to do that. But when we're bombarded with all of the, the, the toxins and pesticides and chemicals and stress and EMF and everything else, I think we can expand, albeit natural, albeit uh, um, a healthy way to do it, not turning to drugs, but how can we improve and should we expand upon uh, what our wellness care could be at the core, still chiropractic care at its core. But how do we expand on that? And I, if you give me the liberty, I'll show that hand to health, which I shared with you before. I right? love that. I so love that. Yeah, please. I said, Listen, I got to be a simpleton, so I'm just going to keep it simple. So if you have a hand, you can understand health. The hand of health is it starts with your pinky. 
It's how and when you eat, right? So that's our biggest influence in, our, in what we're around is what we eat. Other than what we breathe, it's what we eat. So it's how and when you eat. And we could probably get into this for an entire podcast of intermittent fasting, time-restricted feeding, all that kind of stuff. Then it's how and when you sleep, right? How and when you sleep. And how and when you move. So those are the three core. You can put them in anywhere you want to. But how and when you eat, how and when you sleep, and how and when you move. If you can conquer those, you're going to conquer health. But I think it's very difficult to conquer those in today's day and age, the high stress and everything we do. Then on top of that, now, how and when you move, we've talked about, that's structure of your spine, ability, subluxation free, all the things we talk about. It's also self-reflection. It's not moving. It's meditation. It's time to de-stress and all those types of things. On top of that, then we have our fourth finger. This is what we can supplement with. You know, should I take a multivitamin? Should I take some zinc? Whatever that little piece is. Way over here, very disconnected, is the thumb. And that's a medication, which is in times of need, in crisis or emergency care, that's when we need the thumb. But let's not forget this is a hand, right? So this is the hand. So it's how and when we eat, how and when we sleep, how and when we move, what we need to supplement the first three in times of crisis, it's your thumb, but this is a hand that reaches out to your neighbor, to your community, to be part of a, a society, to be part of health. It's the hand that reaches out when someone's in time of need. It's the hand that is very supportive. It's the hand that says, I need some help. It's the hand that says, I can help you. It's the hand that connects us all together. And so if we just did those simple things, and all of us, especially in the chiropractic profession, it's what we've always done. If we just take it and expand it to that message, I mean, this is, we should be and could be and will be on the forefront of the future of healthcare. I totally agree. I mean, this is not something to react to, right? This, this current pandemic is kind of a wake-up call. We've been caught on our heels, not only as a profession, but individually we've been caught on our heels, may, maybe financially, maybe on, for, for your health. Maybe we're caught on our heels as a nation because we can't manufacture a freaking mask. Um, you know, I mean, it, the and the ingenuity coming out is outrageous, right? I mean, you're you're seeing you're you're seeing people do things that are just completely outrageous. I saw a guy uh, built for like a hundred bucks a working ventilator that could work on three people uh, using all parts made on a three D printer. Uh, it's just the ingenuity is outrageous. That ingenuity is going to be coming out in our profession as well. I imagine and, that type of the same type of ingenuity happened during World War II. I wasn't here for that, but when we switched over to war, like this is we're we're phenomenal at creating. You know, it, this this necessity, mother mother of invention is necessity, and necessity is a mother of invention. But to your point too, this is the message. Maybe, and I'll put myself in here because I don't like to throw stones. Maybe all of us got a little bit lazy or, or complacent in our in our profession because, you know, one of my docs, Dr. Shannon Smith, a chiropractor, you know, he said, it's the health of the host. And I said, but we all know that. And he said, no, we're not promoting that message enough. The best way to not get sick, the best way to get over a sickness is to not get sick in the first place. And that's what we've always promoted. You know, it... it but but there, there's more to it, because if you go back to the 1895 model or the 1920 or 1950 or any time in the 20th century, what's different today, like you said, is this this barrage of chemical toxicity and, and EMF and all of that stuff. We can talk for hours about that. I mean, even things like autoimmunity, which has increased in some cases 400 percent in the last decade. 
there's no genetic explanation for that. And again, when we say the word autoimmunity, we're talking about the immune system and and how the environment affects the immune system. And I, I was just doing a bunch of research the other day, and it's the H1N1 pandemic of 2009 there's a clear distinction between having metabolic syndrome and being overweight and the impact that that disease had on you. So what we're seeing is people are in a state, a pro-inflammatory state. If you have more than 20, uh, 20% body fat, your fat cells are just steadily making pro-inflammatory cytokines. Uh, we're in an obese nation. I mean, you just look at that map from 1985 to now, forget Forget 1895, we are far more obese, and therefore the rate of 18 to 54 year olds going to the emergency room with this pandemic is far greater in the US than in the countries where we were getting the data from who came before us. Well, so, you know, in our, and let's, keeping in the theme of our profession, the chiropractic profession, you know, we were always told and taught. The, the human body doesn't have a, an organ system for disease, right? It doesn't have a, we don't have, what's the, what's the organ that's responsible for creating disease in our body? There isn't one. We are not born with spare parts, right? So, but every tissue is responding in, a, in an appropriate way. So, you know, the great Vern Pierce was one of my mentors as, as an adjuster, and he would call it an a normal compensation to an abnormal situation. And what I mean by that is if, if we have excess fat in our body and then this fat tissue, this adipose tissue is giving off this inflammatory message, well, that's a, that's an, that's a normal signal to an abnormal, I've eaten too much, I've given the wrong lifestyle, I haven't moved enough. So based on an abnormal situation, it's a normal response. Um, and so the, the fat tissue, adipose tissue is actually an endocrine gland. It's actually like your thyroid or your, you know, it's, it's, or your pancreas, it's an endocrine gland. Imagine if you had a pancreas that was the size of, you know, your chest wall and you said, Oh, I have too much insulin. Yeah, of course you do because you have a pancreas that's 10 times as normal size. Well, if you're 400 pounds, you have an endocrine gland that's ginormous. And so it's giving off signals. And the answer, just like it always has been in our profession is not cut it out. It's, it's not just kind of, it's, it's don't let it get to that point to begin with. Yeah, no, I mean, look, the, 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 the coming out of this, we're going to have to communicate to our communities that, look, you were caught on your heels. You're sick. You're, you're in the pro-inflammatory state. You're, you've been kind of just, you know, now, now you're in a situation where if you get this virus and now, Chris, I kind of want to go into the virus a little bit, because one of the things that I've been saying in the last just a few days is the virus isn't killing anybody. Uh, the virus is, see, a, 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 my, the, the idea here is a virus that's incredibly deadly, like Ebola, uh, that, uh, you know, in, in the 1976 epidemic, uh, infected 380 people and killed 90% of them. So, so the virus had no opportunity to really spread around the world because it was that deadly. So the virus can't live in a host that's dead. Now, the common cold, on the other hand, spreads around the planet with no problem because it's just going from viable host to viable host, doesn't kill anybody, and it's nice and fun. This seems to be a hybrid, and it's a hybrid because it should be mild, which it is, we're seeing for a lot of people, 
but it's not mild for some. And it seems like it's those who have that cytokine storm where, where if it gets into your lungs and your immune system has a dramatic over-response, and the analogy I use is if your immune system has a dramatic over-response to food, like gluten, uh, that's an inappropriate response of the immune system to food. Uh, if the immune system sees your thyroid and sees it as a threat and attacks it, that's an autoimmune condition, an overreaction of the immune system. So now you have a virus that should give you a cold, but now it's causing an overreaction in that person. And the cytokine storm is what's deadly because it's going to cause flooding into the lungs of, of fluid. And now you're uh, sitting with, with a pneumonia and away you go on the ventilator. So, so speak to that. And if I could even tie the first part of the conversation, tie it all together and, and I'll make some possibly I'll split a few hairs here only because, you know, the other thing I find unique is in the uh, healthcare profession and, and the maybe, um, I don't know, maybe, I don't want to use the word natural. I would just say, I would just say better healthcare, but the healthcare profession we are. I've noticed that much like we've done even in the chiropractic profession, there's so much infighting within our own small world um, that I've tried to keep things pretty splitting hairs about what we say and what we don't say. So let me go back a little bit. So the chemicals we talked about before, they're called endocrine disrupting compounds, right? And they're also called obesogens, which means the chemical itself makes us obese, which we've also said changes the functionality of our body. If we're obese, we're inflamed. If we're already inflamed and we twist our ankle, that inflammation is going to be exaggerated. If we're already inflamed, from our pre-existing condition, and we get a virus, now the inflammation is gonna be exponentially worse. So I, I know there's a specific definition to the cytokine storm, which we're flirting with. So I would even, I would broaden that out just so we don't get criticized to the, the minutia. Let's just say it's an excessive inflammatory response when we get a virus, right? Now it could be a cytokine storm, but it may not be but it's an excessive inflammatory response. So this virus does two things. One, it causes that inflammatory response and it replicates inside the cell to cause cell apoptosis. So there's kind of two pieces to this. Um, but yeah, so the virus itself, we've seen just like you alluded to with other previous pathogens, uh, if you're immune compromised, if, if you're a smoker. Now age, if you've been on the planet for a longer period of time, there's a, pro a greater probability you've come in contact with something that has compromised your body. So age is a correlation. I don't know if it's a causation, but it's a correlation. But certainly if you're compromised in any way, shape or form, immunocompromised, previous infection, autoimmune disease, don't take care of yourself, don't eat right, sleep right, move right, then you're at greater risk when you get infected. And, and I think it's probably a when you get infected. It's no different than some people get the flu, they get over it in three days, other people get the flu and wind up in the hospital as well. So this virus is novel. It's, it's, a, it's a very novel, we haven't seen it before. And it does have a greater propensity to change the surfactant levels in our lungs, which can cause us to have issues. But it still goes back to health of host and what drives this inflammatory response and what can we do to help mitigate this inflammatory response 
Um, so I don't know if that was the question you're asking, or I just want to. No, no, you. you, No, no, it was perfect. It was perfect. I actually, what's interesting, so most of the cases uh, of this virus is affecting the lungs, but in out of China, the 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 data that they got was 10% of the cases were presenting as GI. Uh, and they were shedding uh, vi- virus through the GI tract. Yeah, so it's uh, important for for us. If I just can interrupt you, sorry. Is is it this hits anywhere we have this endothelial lining? So it can be our nose, our mouth, our well, we don't have endothelium in our eyes, but it can be any area, our borders, which again is what we've always kind of taught is border protection. You know, in our profession, uh, in in the functional medicine, we talked a lot about leaky gut, but it's it's really our borders, which are designed to be our first level of defense. And if they're distracted by this other inflammatory process going on in our bodies because we don't have good states of health, if we're already inflamed and our immune system is distracted, it has less ability to attack this virus when it comes into our mucosal membranes, wherever that may be. So the borders are what? Skin? I would, I would argue, maybe a little bit aggressively, but certainly skin, that makes sense. Lungs, um, nose, mouth, so our entire GI tract. Then we have other borders. Females have vaginal lining, uh, but there's endothel- anywhere we have endothelial tissue, we have these first line of defense characters, they're called defensins. And defensins are made up of cysteine, um, so cysteine and cysteine also makes something called glutathione. I know I'm going on a tangent, but glutathione is called the body's bodyguard. So cysteine helps to make these defenses. And they're like the first, they're like the privates that are in the first line of the defense. They're in all our endothelial lining. So that's going to happen around our gut, our nose, our heart, our kidneys. So it's organ protection as well. So we see some people come down with this disease and it'll affect their heart or it'll affect their kidneys. That's almost predictable. Now, it's not as readily available as our lungs or our GI tract because that's obviously a first level of defense. But if we lose these defenses around our gut, around our lungs, then they're susceptible. But you can lose it around your heart. You can lose it around your kidneys. You can have compromise of your blood-brain barrier. So these anywhere there's a barrier in your body is kind of a protective layer. And this endothelial tissue we talk about, it's in the bladder. So anywhere we have this kind of protective layer, there's defenses. It's actually documented that we have these defenses in all of our epithelial tissue. And so we see with other, other diseases, if we just quickly shift over, we pick on Lyme disease quite a bit. We see it a lot. So you can get Lyme endocarditis, so Lyme-driven heart disease, Lyme-driven brain disease. Lyme-driven lung disease, Lyme-driven GI symptoms, Lyme-driven urinary tract issues, Lyme-driven kidney issues. We're going to see the same exact outcome, I think. Now, this virus makes us all look stupid, but I think this virus, we're going to see select cases to all those tissues because we've lost our ability to defend ourselves with those defenses as our first piece. That that that's a great summary. I love the way you you talked about the uh, defensins and of course cysteine you mentioned before. Uh, you know it's funny that when you say cysteine, we start thinking, all right, well, a lot of doctors and a lot of people are are just going online and trying to find out, well, what can I take to protect myself? Right, I, I can't get this uh, hydrochloroquine. Uh, I I can't you know get access to that. I'm going to take some vitamin C. I'm going to take some vitamin you know D. I'm going to boost my immune system. And by the way. 
uh, I'm going to take a whole bunch of elderberry and, uh, you know, well, it, it's funny cause you mentioned the elderberry to me and, and, um, you'll, you'll, you'll speak to that. But yesterday I went to see a, a manufacturer of, of, uh, nutraceuticals and he asked me if I, if I was interested in elderberry cause he goes, it's because we were getting tons of orders for elderberry. <laughs> you know, when this first came out, I said the first three things I recommended were vitamin D, vitamin A, and N-acetylcysteine or NAC. And NAC, I've used, it actually, you know, I said this virus is going to make us look dumb. NAC has made me look really smart. So NAC, I first started to use 20 years ago plus, and it helps to upregulate liver hepatodetoxification or biotransformation. It upregulates your P450 enzyme. So a lot of people would actually take it when they drink alcohol because they don't get a hangover, right? So that's one of the reasons they would take it. But this cysteine is used to make glutathione and these defensins and everything else. And if you look in the literature, so I'm looking, what is some easy, cheap, readily available uh, substances you can use? And there's studies on glutathione and NAC, how it attenuates or blocks the viral replication. So it stops the virus from replicating on a cellular level. It also builds up our defenses. It also doesn't cost a ton of money. It also doesn't require a prescription. It also is something we should have in our body all the time. Um, so those three things, and I know we both agree on this, they're just core, just core pieces. Now, you, vitamin A and vitamin D are fat-soluble. They can be toxic. You can take too much of them. Um, NAC or N-acetylcysteine, hard to end just to let everybody out there in the whole world know it's been used in the hospitals for decades and decades and decades. And if you go get an MRI, many times they'll follow, if you get a contrast, sometimes they'll put NAC, it's called mucamist, right behind it because it protects you against contrast medium reactions. It protects us against, if you overdose on a bottle of Tylenol and go to the hospital, most of the time they'll give you NAC because it protects your liver. It's just a protector. So um, yeah, I'd start there. Now, do you want me to dive into the elderberry story or not? Yeah, I do. <laughs> I put out, and this is, you know, try, you know me, I try to stay pretty humble. Um, and so I put this out there just to educate people. I wasn't trying to uh, denigrate the elderberry growers of America, right? That wasn't my goal. But elderberry works very well. It's a phenomenal herb. It's been used for a long, long period of time. It helps to reduce the effects of the cold, helps to reduce the effects of a flu. It helps to kill off a pathogen quicker for many people. And I don't know how deep we want to go, but I'll- What's just... the mechanism? What's the mechanism? So the mechanism is, one of the mechanisms is it upregulates. I'll just kind of keep it superficial. We can go deeper if you want to. It upregulates inflammatory cytokines. So it increases inflammation, which by the way, so does your body when you get a cold. You get a fever and you kill off the flu. That, that, that's what you are called. You kill off the cold. So a fever is beneficial. We, you know, and our profession has always promoted that. Like, why are we going against what the body's doing? A fever is great. So if you get sick and you get a fever of 103, that's great. If you get a fever of 110, not so good. Like, that's not good. So you get this inflammatory cascade that exceeds your metabolic rate or it's too much for your body to handle. So you don't want to get, you don't want to cook too much. You want to cook a little bit. So what will happen is you'll activate your immune system. You'll get inflammation. But 
That may have been phenomenal 40 years ago or 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Today, it's a different, it's a different animal. It's a different world. It's estimated that we have close to 300 million Americans with autoimmune, antib autoimmune antibodies or autoimmune reactivity. So, you know, an antibody is an upside down Y. So this is my antibody. If I have an antibody towards the coronavirus, then I'm going to go attack the coronavirus. That's a good thing. If I have an antibody to my own thyroid, I don't want to turn that on, right? I don't want to turn on my own autoantibodies. So one of the things that elderberry may do, so if you're perfectly healthy and you get the flu, you get the corona, you get anything, you may want to take elderberry because it may shorten the duration of the infection. If, however, you have antibodies to yourself or you're immune compromised or you're not uh, immunoregulated and you take elderberry, you may activate your own antibodies to your own tissue. You may. So, and when I put this out, I put a short video out that just said, hey, I know a lot of people are turning to elderberry. Be aware. I didn't tell them to use it or not to use it because they're not my patients and I'm not making medical recommendations. But I said, you may want to be aware that by taking elderberry, you may increase your auto reactivity. And I had so many people reach out to me. I think we had a over 10,000 views of this little tiny video I put out. It's like four minutes. Put it out on our Facebook just as public service. By the way, we have elderberry in the office, so I'm not an elderberry hater. Right? So, But I said, be aware of it. And I cannot tell you how many people reached out to me and said, thank you so much because everybody's been telling me to take elderberry for 10 years. I have autoimmune disease. I have autoimmune reactivity, and I've always done terrible on it. And they kept telling me to take more and I just kept getting worse. So they were very grateful. So I had a lot of love. On the converse, I had so many people reach out to me telling me, how dare I talk about elderberries so bad. It's like I was picking on, it was, it was like I was destroying their religion. And I had elderberry growers and elderberry manufacturers and people tell me, I don't know what I'm talking about. And this guy from Wisconsin who said, well, yes, it causes inflammation. Of course you want to cause, that guy's an idiot. Of course you want to cause inflammation. You do, but you don't want to cause inflammation to the point where you get this cytokine activation of it being too inflammatory to your body. So it's okay to be, increase your level of inflammation and you want that robustly, but you don't want it chronically. You don't want it to go on to an excessive rate. You don't want a fever of 110 you want a fever of 103. So the question is, is a fever good or bad? It depends on the milieu it's in. It's, it, depends on the, it depends on your stew. Does your stew need some salt? Not if it's heavily salted, right? So just understanding the, the, the mechanism of what it can do. So, you know, in my world, I'm like, what's your mechanism of action? And if the mechanism is I'm adding inflammation to an already roastedly inflamed body, that's bad. If I'm adding it to something that needs a little heat, that's good. So elderberry is neither good nor bad, but understanding the mechanism, it, if you're taking it and you're like, oh, I'm supposed to feel terrible when I take this stuff and I'm supposed to be not able to move, that's bad. That's a bad elderberry reaction. So to your question, which I probably went down a rabbit hole, it may activate TH17. TH17 is an attacker. TH17 is great short term for a flu, for a cold, for a virus, for a pathogen. It's great but the mechanism of autoimmunity is overstimulation or overactivation of TH17. 
And there is a potential for elderberry to do such that, such a thing. So that, that that's, if you understand this mechanism, now you use it at your own risk. All right. So since you brought up this TH17 and, and, and let, let's, you know, I, I, I do want to, I, I do want these in interviews to get deep, but let's sure. kind of bring everyone with us. Right. So give a, 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 a just kind of a, <laughs> that's far di- different from the one that I saw when I was that little drawing you had, look at that, 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 that looks professional. Draw this out individually for every patient. And, and it was chicken scratch until a couple people said, you need to have it in a picture. And then I, I probably have six versions of it here. It went from like a, you know, a stick figure and finally somebody to put color to it and all kinds of things. But it, it's our, it's our, it's how we practice. It is the, it is normal physiology and how normal physiology can go sideways and why it might go sideways. So, um, you know, the immune system doesn't make mistakes. It responds to its environment appropriately. The problem is the environment may not be appropriate. So what's the proper response to a, a barrage of chemical, electromagnetic, lack of sleep, high stress? That What's the normal response to that? I don't know that the body's really designed or created to say, I'm supposed to run from the tiger 24 hours a day, seven days a week for five years in a row. It's not a normal response. So, so, the, so what we what you're saying is the immune system of Americans today in the year 2020 is under a really unprecedented uh, assault by the environment. The environment being all the things you just mentioned, and uh, that leaves our, our, our that leaves us susceptible, right? So, this particular virus, which maybe should have gone the way of the H1N1, or and that was considered a pandemic too. You know, it's funny. I, I saw uh, today. Uh, right now, 50% of all Americans have antibodies to the H1N1 of 2009. So, so what a lot of our colleagues are afraid of right now is this is going to be used. And I, I, I saw an interview with a Dr. Peter Hotez, who's basically trying to create a resurgence of a uh, of a vaccine he created to like the SARS uh, thing in 2002. I guess they spent a ton of money and they didn't sell their product. And they're looking to recycle the, this thing because it's a coronavirus, which, by the way, so is the common cold, a coronavirus. So, so the, you know, explain how if we have herd immunity to the H1N1 of 2009, wouldn't it stand to reason we're going to have herd immunity to this one in fairly short order? Uh, where's the, the argument for a vaccine? Well, that's a great question. Um, and so th- this is the issue is if, if we, to get herd immunity, we'll come at a cost. So I'll play devil's advocate first and then come back on the winning team. So, um, so it, to get to herd immunity, we're going to have to have 60, 70% exposure of the population to get this. If we're, if we're largely obese, out of shape, not taking care of ourselves, eating a crappy diet, don't move well, sleep well, eat well, um, it's going to take its toll and a lot of people are going to die. Like a, lo- a lot of people are, may die from this in a very short period of time, especially when they do need that crisis intervention or critical care, what the medical profession is great at, this critical intervention and crisis care. 
if too many people need that in a very short order, there's not enough emergency docs or, or critical care ICU docs to support those people. So they're at increased probability to have serious health ramifications and, and die. So the argument is if we can give everybody a vaccine and they don't get that reaction where they go to the hospital, so if we can artificially create herd immunity, so to speak, by giving them the vaccine so they can build up their antibodies, um, then we would avoid that overflow, over overrun of the healthcare system, and we won't have everybody running to the hospitals. So that's one thought. That that's where the vaccine comes in. Now, if if I can be a little critical at the same time, uh, so the vaccine's 12 to 18 months away, probably at best. Even if we fast track, it says 12 months away. And if we do fast track, that means we're skipping steps towards protecting the population. So it's interesting, the same doctor you referenced before um, wants to use potentially a previous vaccine that he came up with, but he also cautioned, even though he's a very, very strong proponent of vaccines and doesn't give any credibility, in my opinion, to the human body at all, because he's all about giving you a vaccine. And he's he's so anti anti-vax. He's so pro-vax. It's 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 amazing. Uh, even he says sometimes if we don't take our, our steps correctly, the vaccine can cause more harm than good. Like with the rotavirus vaccine, he quoted, and he said, you know, how, how that was more harmful and was causing these children to go to the hospital and they were dying for anarcholitis and all these different things. So if we fast track it, how do we know the three-year health ramifications of a vaccine that's been studied for 12 months? How do we know... And, and how do we know the long-term effects of what this vaccine is going to do if, if we've only studied it for a short period of time? We don't know those answers. So there's risk associated, if I was being neutral, if I was blind, there is a risk associated for not doing a vaccine, and there's a risk associated for doing a vaccine, and we have to determine which one's greater. I have a bias, so I put that out there. I do have a bias. But if we, if we say we're going to put a vaccine out, we don't know the long-term ramifications. Now, it's interesting, too, when we talk about vaccines like the rotavirus, we can measure what it's doing to the bowel and the small intestine. What we cannot measure is what this accumulation of vaccine adjuvants and other things are doing to our brain. It's not a measurable, right? So it's, it's, we'll break it down very simply. You get a concussion. You, you, you tear your quadricep. We can measure how strong your quadricep is. You break a bone, we can take an x-ray. You, you, you lacerate your kidney, we can measure that. You get a concussion, except for some in our profession who are functional chiros or functional, uh, uh, functional neurochiros and, and people that are trained to kind of do minutia detail of brain function, you, know, you don't see it. You don't see the effects of the brain and you don't notice it until there's another insult. That's a potential. It has to be a potential for a vaccine, right? If a vaccine can damage tissue, why can't it cause an insult to brain that's not measurable? So that's something we're not going to see. So we don't see that. Certainly, we're not going to see it if we only study it for 12 months and fast track a vaccine out there because we don't have three years worth of data to study it. Um, so th there is some negativity associated with a vaccine. The positivity, which could be that side of the argument would be, is if we put it out there, we can pr we can get quote-unquote herd immunity quicker uh, at a cost. It, it'll come at a cost. Um, 
But if we got, if we will get herd immunity, probably, my opinion, probably prior to a vaccine coming out, right? Well, this thing is so contagious that I can't imagine we're not going to hit herd immunity in the next 12 months. So at that point, the discussion, the, the point is moved. Now we're, we're basically, if we vaccinate after we get herd immunity, we're only going to have negative side effects. All right. So then what's the argument for, now the argument that they'll use is the same one they use for the flu. Yeah, we know the flu vaccine was the wrong, it was the wrong flu, like we picked the wrong one, but get it anyway, because, you know, it, it, it makes your immune system stronger. <laughs> yeah. So if we just, I, I think we've, we've really if I could be completely um, transparent and try not to be biased. So another thing I say every day when I get up is do not have a confirmation bias, right? So don't go into a case with a confirmation bias, go in open-minded. If we say we need a vaccine, we're, we're looking at the immune system from like the 1950s and 60s. We're not even looking at it correctly. So we kind of say we go from innate immunity to adaptive immunity and we go to adaptive immunity, we make antibodies. And, and so what we'll do is we'll skip that first step and go right to giving you uh, an attenuated or, or, or a dead or even sometimes a live uh, bug and you'll make antibodies to it. But isn't it kind of naive to say nothing is happening beneficially along that whole tract of initial exposure, defense and activity, things that complement your immune system like complement factor. <laughs> complement helps to complement the immune system. And this complement talks down three different pathways. It talks to this adaptive immunity, the innate immunity. There's a lot of feedback loop. It's just naive to think that we can just hijack one piece of the immune system and say everything's going to be hunky-dory. So there is a huge unknown, potentially, uh, I would say, epidemic consequence to fast tracking a vaccine as well. Yeah, and and you know, again, confirmation bias is de- definitely something we have to be aware of. But also, I, I think the reason why I asked the question is because our profession, again, cannot be caught on their heels on this. And you know, I'd like to see more people in our profession trained in epidemiology, so that when the data, think about the massive amounts of data that's going to be downloaded on this particular virus. Is that going to be public? And if it's going to be public, do we have people in our on our side of the of uh, of healthcare? You know, again, when I say our side of healthcare, it's not a political side. It's a philosophy. It's an understanding of how the body works. So we're preaching to the choir. We don't need to go in into that. It's better healthcare. I, I didn't even talk about it. As well. It's better healthcare. Better healthcare. Ab- absolutely. So so then I I mean I I'm curious. I want to know. What percentage of people who were vaccinated for the flu had a certain type of response to the coronavirus if all other factors have been taken into account? So you take a 65-year-old uh, or a 60 to 70-year-old uh, cohort and, and with all the same criteria, but the difference is this group got the flu shot, this group did not. Was there a difference? By the way, you don't know the answer. I don't know the answer, but the data is going to be there. What about this question? How many people get the flu shot and get the flu? We don't even get that data. Right. So, I mean, if we, if we have a direct immunization, the flu, you, you got the flu shot. How many people got the flu? 
Like you got the flu shot. How many people got the flu? Right. If we can ask that question, then we could say, what's the efficacy of this? Um, but nobody's asking the question, what is the potential detriment to your overall immune system? Because it's a toxic load and right. it's burden your immune system can bear. Maybe it can bear it better in 1950, but now we have toxins and pesticides and stress and constant news and terrible thoughts and all and, and kids and you have to all the the burden that we have to our immune system and adding that up with an additional in your case flu vaccine what is that that summation or addition effect which inhibits our body's natural ability to fight off the coronavirus yeah no look that's what i'm saying we we have to be prepared for when we come out of this because the world's changed we don't know what's going to happen, but there's a thousand page bill nobody's read and everyone's vote voting for as of today. Uh, and it, it passed and they're going to sign it. And uh, who knows what kind of rights were given up uh, for this. So we're really going to have to be vi vigilant as a profession. And, you know, you, we have a lot of time in the future to talk more and more about these issues. But I do want to kind of bring this back to uh, ground ground floor and just say, look, we're in the middle of this. We don't know. Things we talked about just now could be completely wrong or different in just three, four, five days. I mean, th things are happening that fast. Some of the core points. Health of the host matters most. The hand. The hand is... <laughs> the hand isn't going to change. And how healthy you are going into whatever situation. The, the, I will be, I'm comfortable that this isn't going to change. The healthier you are before you get insulted, you know, so the healthier you are before you get exposed to coronavirus or anything, the healthier you are, the better outcome you'll have. We're leading that charge and we need to come out of this in a leadership role and we need to educate more and more of our doctors to be an expert in a lot of the things that we're talking about. Again, I don't think everyone needs to go through what you and I went through to get our education in neurology and functional neuro functional nutrition and functional medicine, blood work, because it's just not necessary. And there are, it, it would be bad for the profession because there are great chiropractors who need to continue being great chiropractors. Right, absolutely, absolutely. However, they, there should be a basic core level of knowledge in every single graduate and practitioner so that their community can turn to them in this kind of a crisis, get on video conference, phone, doc, what can I do? I can't come into the office. What, you know, and to be able to, to not see your practice take that kind of a downturn. So we hope that, you know, we can start that conversation at least, um, you know, move, moving forward. So we've covered a lot of things. I don't want to, uh, I, I, I don't want to, Stop the. I want to keep talking, right? I, I want to talk about the immune system more. I want to talk about uh, supplements. But if if we could just say, you're you're sitting at home, you can't get to your doctor's office. Your doctor doesn't carry any of these products. What are the top five things somebody could find in Wegmans that would support their immune system, not fight the coronavirus, but support them, their health and their immune system. You said it before, vitamin D, vitamin A. Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned vitamin C. You and I both prefer the liposomal form, but it, you can certainly take it in any other form. Um, D, A, C, and then NAC, right? NAC, and if you throw in zinc, I think it's beneficial. So it's the right. system. 
but and and so and so to those who don't want to take a pill right so you can do carrot juice to get your vitamin a you can zest your organic uh citrus fruit to try and get some vitamin c you can eat brazil nuts to get your zinc so vitamin d is unless you're out in the sun you're really not going to get any and it's intense but a d c zinc uh, NAC or, or cysteine, you know, sulfur, th- those are, those are essential. They're cheap. They're easy. They can be gotten at any health food store. Now, as far as NAC goes, uh, as far as NAC, what do you, th- uh, what do you think, uh, with regards to having some other minerals in that compound? I know you and I have talked extensively about molybdenum and selenium and how important they can be. Run, run through that. Cofactors. I do. I think that's a distinguishing thing. I don't think you're going to find that level of acuity at like, you know, your Walmarts and your Wegmans, but I think, you know, ours has, I think yours does too. We have the same type of, of I think we use the same product and it has the molybdenum in it and, and, the, and some of the selenium in it. I think that's important as a cofactor for it, but, um, but those are things found in a healthy diet as well. Absolutely. Yeah. If you're eating your nuts and your seeds and you're eating, you know, meat, fruits and vegetables, I think that's that you're going to get a lot of that. In there. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's really uh, people don't appreciate how NAC can upregulate glutathione to a point where, you know, NAC is cheap. Glutathione's expensive. Yes. You know, and, 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 they're, and they're running out. I had a patient and, and she called me, she's taking this oral glutathione, but it's not liposomal and it's super expensive. I'm like, well, that's doing you no good. And it's 10 times the price of just getting straight NAC. It's right. cheap. This doesn't have to be, and this is a, I, I, I know I, if you just give me two seconds, a lot of people I've seen have been very opportunistic during this and they're gouging people and they're, I don't want to say they're ripping them off. I think maybe they're altruistic. Maybe they're trying to do the best thing possible, but they're, they're, getting people to buy the most expensive stuff that they have on their shelves. But, and that's okay. I'm not judging that except for you got to get your basics. You you know, vitamin A is cheap. Vitamin D is cheap. NAC is cheap. Vitamin C is cheap. Zinc is super cheap. Hit your course. And we talked a little bit before about um, this inflammation that we get, right? So we talk about being inflamed and it puts you at an increased or predisposition for the virus. We can eat a diet that's less inflammatory. Right. So I know you and I talk about this. So if we're eating less sugar, less refined foods, and we could go on many rabbit trails about different types of diets, but we could all agree that less refined, less processed, less sugar is better for all of us. And if our diet is a big piece of our inflammatory piece, then everything else is added on top of that. And that we we could and should be the ambassadors of health in the chiropractic profession. You, you have to say you got to move right. Your joints got to move right. You got to have proper stimulation to your brain and your nervous system without interference. But if the interference is what you're doing like this all the time, what you're putting in your mouth, we just, we could just take a step this much further and be the leaders in the healthcare profession. Yeah. And the medical profession has chosen to not go down that route anyway. So it, it's wide open. We're, we have the education. We have the primary portal of entry uh, licensure in every state. You know, we have the education and the knowledge and the philosophy. It is our time to kind of seize this because if we don't, who will, right? So, and to your point, Steve, I, I think that with an altruistic love of our profession and mankind and health, we can, we could, we could be. Listen, it's not something I would choose to do, but 
um, but I feel obligated. We could lead this profession. We could help these people with just, they're already, they're on the one yard line. They're already there. They're 99% of the way there with just a little bit of help. They can explode how they interface with the population and get them to a new level of health. I think we could probably bridge the gap between what they don't know and what they already know. And I think so many of these docs know more than they think. They, they, they're just, they're not exposed and we kind of live in this bubble. But if we just give them this much information, it's like dynamite. That's right. It pieces it all, all together. It doesn't take a whole lot. And, and uh, Chris, just so we can wrap things up, I want to summarize a couple of things. We talked about a lot of things. We talked about you know, what, what's going on in the current pandemic. We talked about the immune system and how it reacts to certain compounds we, we put into our bodies, how uh, our immune system can be changed forever by our environment and the environment in, in which we put it in, our stress environment, food environment, et cetera. Uh, we, we talked about strategies for doctors to get out there and become experts and, and not get caught flat-footed again. Um, so, so I guess what my, my question or the, the point that I want to make now is, first of all, how can people reach out to you? In other words, if, if, where can they find you? Uh, is there a Facebook page? Is there, is there an Instagram? Is there some kind of a resource? Turpo Health and Wellness Center. So you can like us or find us on Facebook. And we're trying to continually put out uh, uh, information on there. It's sometimes in video form. Sometimes it's in written form. We have a YouTube page. We have an Instagram page. Um, uh, any questions you want, you can reach out to us at info, I-N-F-O, at Turnpaw, T-U-R-N-P-A-U-G-H, H-W-C. So it's turnpawhealthwellnesscenter.com. Uh, you can visit our, our, we also have a, a turnpawhealthandwellnesscenter.com uh, webpage. We're, I can't stress enough. We're here for the community. We're here for the profession. We're here for, you know, I've said for 25 years, if I get hit by a bus, I want this message to continue. This is not about me. It's about us. That's right. That, that, that's the legacy we, we have to, uh, put forth. And, uh, so we, we, we certainly got a lot to talk about. We're going to do this more and more. Everyone's at home consuming a whole bunch of media because there's nothing else to, to do. There's no better time like the present to kind of get us prepared for that that next step forward. And uh, thanks, Chris, for coming on. And we're going to do this again, hopefully, in uh, within the week. Yeah, Steve, thanks for doing this. I really uh, can't give you enough accolades for, for creating this environment for people to get better. It's a wonderful thing that you've chosen to do. I know it's not easy and swimming upstream, but... Sometimes the right thing to do is just the right thing to do. So I can't give you enough accolades for doing this. Thanks so much. You got it, buddy. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of chiropractic, medicine, nursing, or any other professional healthcare service, including the giving of chiropractic or medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional chiropractic or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not regard or delay in obtaining chiropractic or medical advice from any chiropractic or medical condition they may have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.